grab your Bibles, turn to Psalm 63. Psalm 63. As uh, I am, I am a person who likes to preach through whole books of the Bible. One, just as, as a, a teacher, it, it helps me know, um, a former teacher I should say, it, it helps me know what the next piece is, the next, uh, I know where I'm going. It, it's got the spiraling kind of curriculum thing, that's why we preach through whole books of the Bible. Um, and so weeks like this where we are, it, it's kind of a standalone sermon, I, I struggle. And then you add on top of that, New Year's Day. What do you say on the beginning of a new year? You know, it's usually kind of the rousing, okay, this is where we're going. We're going to take this hill for Jesus, and by gum, we're going to do it, and people are going to come to kind of one of those big political statements, the big church movements. This is our vision. This is where we're going to go. And so I'm thinking through that. What is it that God is placing on my heart for us as a church? What is he placing on deep inside of me saying, okay, Paul, this is what we have got to really be working on. This is where we're going for 2012. And as we're going through, I'm thinking, Todd helped me out for a little bit. We were in 1 Corinthians 15. You know, now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that you received and the gospel in which you stand and the gospel by which you're being saved. That thing, I'm going, yeah, reminding, you know, the gospel is central to every, everything that we do. Okay, that's good. And then it kind of came to, what was it, Wednesday, and I'm going, uh-uh. That's, that's just not it. And Psalm 63 in my devotions was the thing that just resonated. What is it that, that God is calling us? If we want to go anywhere in our, our personal lives, Christian lives with Christ, if we want to go anywhere as a church, what is it that we need? We need to be a people who are just earnestly seeking after God. Scripture even talks about, uh, the psalmist says, uh, as the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you, just pants for you. And it's not this little Bambi picture of coming up to the water and taking a nice cool sip. It's as a deer that has been chasing after something, that is panting, just in dire need of water. In the same way that we as a church have got to have the same earnestness, this desire to be searching after God, seeking after God. So, we're going to read Psalm 63, follow along with me. Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down in the paths of depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be the portion for the jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars shall be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. A little bit of history here. This is a section where uh, King David penned Psalm 63. And this was a time in his life where he thought he had kind of reached the apex of his, his being the king over Israel. And his son Absalom came along. And if you know the story of Absalom, Absalom is this, he had, is known for his long flowing hair, but Absalom had a power thirst. He was hungry for power, and he wanted to take the throne from his father. 
in such a way that even, even the commanders of da- some of David's army, uh, even some of the army itself, joined Absalom's side. And so David and some of his most trusted men were pushed out, and they became wanderers out in the wilderness. They were hiding out in, in the nooks and crannies of the wilderness, and they were hiding. They were going from one place to another place to another place because they were, they were being chased down like dogs. They were hiding in caves, hiding in caves, moving here. And every time that they turned, they knew they could not stay here long because word would get out to Absalom, and Absalom would come for them. So David is writing this under a tremendous amount of pressure. His his life is being asked for. So there's pressure. He he can't escape the pressure. And I think some of us can even understand that. We we get the pressure as students getting as many of the assignments done and doing them well. And especially, you know, talking to some of the students around the time of finals, it gets nuts. Right before the holidays, all these papers, all these assignments, and you got all these exams, and we got to get these done. So the pressure is pushing in on every side. We have the fact of pressure from our work lives. Day in, day out, the pressing to get things done, and even to bring home a check. The busy schedule of having a family life. There is just pressure all around. And in the midst of all these pressures, there's one thing that determines the course of our life. It's our priorities. What is absolutely important? What is our priority? We all have priorities. Some of us can't articulate them, but we have priorities. One way that you can look at your priorities is opening up your checkbook, looking at your credit card statement. That's one way that you can look at your priorities. Another way that you can look at what are your priorities is how do you spend your time? Who do you hang around with? Those all are are the priorities that you have. And if you cannot clearly articulate and define what your priorities are and keep them in front of you in the midst of pressures, you'll probably be just swept downstream. And you'll be frustrated, you'll be exhausted. And you'll probably not end up where you wanted to go in the first place. So as we start 2012, as we, January 1, as we start this this day and this year, I want to talk about probably one of the most, it's not the most, but one of the most important priorities that we can have as individuals and as a church. And that is seeking after God. Just constantly pushing, seeking after God. If we neglect the seeking after God, even though all things might seem like they're going really well, we're going to find ourselves off course. And so this morning, we're, we're going to look, walk through this, this whole section, and, and we're going to see how does David do it? What, what does he do when he is a man under pressure? How does he in the midst of pressure, in the midst of all the demands of his life, how does he keep things going? How does he stay on track? So, first, this is our theme. This is the thing that we're just going to be working through. Our theme is seeking after God should be our most important priority for this year. Seeking after God. So how do we do this? We're going to deal with two questions. One, what does it mean to seek after God? And two, how do we seek after God? What does it mean to really seek after God? Well, here's the first thing. Can you throw it up there for me, Craig? The first one is, to seek after God means to have an intimate, personal relationship with God. Here he says, Oh God, you are my God. And earnestly, I seek after you. David knew an intimate God in an intimate, in a very personal way. Obviously, this wasn't the first time that he wrote a song about God. We've got Psalm 23 where he talks about the Lord is 
my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me by paths of here, and he does this, and he provides for me. He cares for me. He brings me to cool waters where I'm refreshed. He talks about this God of his, an intimate, personal God. So in this time of crisis, we don't see David saying, Oh God, wherever you might be, whatever, wherever you're hiding out, help me out here. Instead, what do we see him do? He says, Oh God, you're my God, and earnestly I'm going to seek you. There's a vast difference, a vast difference between actually knowing a person like you would read in a book and knowing a person. I think if we would ever base our, our marriages off like we read books, our marriages would fail. I know my wife. She, she likes uh, a good glass of red wine. She, uh, she likes cheese. She likes this. She likes that. She likes this. Uh, I got a real kind of surfacey kind of knowledge of my wife. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a deep, personal, intimate. What is it about her that gets her excited, that makes her just go for the gusto? What is it that makes her cry? What is it that makes her laugh? What is, what is it that makes her smile? What is it that just takes her out of her safety zone to a place where she is going to be vulnerable and open? And so we're going to say... God, for us to earnestly seek after God, it must be an intimate, personal relationship. A lot of people know about God. And that might even be some of you this morning. You might know about God. You might know the facts. Maybe you've gone through Sunday school. Maybe you've gone through CCD. Maybe you've gone through whatever. Maybe you even took a membership course here. And you know about God. But knowing God personally is different than knowing him intimately. To know the one and true God who's holy in all of his ways, you must trust in Jesus Christ as your sin bearer and receive the free gift of eternal life that he offers. That is the starting point. And then as in any other relationship, any other relationship, we have got to develop a deep friendship, an intimate friendship with God. But there's things in our lives that hinder us. And what are those things? Sin. Sin hinders us from having this deep, intimate, personal relationship with God. And so to grow closer to Him, we have got to openly confess all the sin, all the things that are getting in the way. As my wife and I are starting our 11th year of marriage, we have so far to go. We, we've, we've just begun. And one of the things that holds us back is our own sinful nature. My, my wants, my needs, my this, my that. That is, that is the very thing that kills our marriage. Scripture says that we've got to die to ourselves. Pick up our cross and follow after Jesus. The same is true in marriage relationships. So, it's also true with our relationship with Christ. To seek after God means that we have to have this kind of growing relationship with Him through Jesus Christ where he discloses himself more and more and more and more and more. The second thing is to seek after God means that we always desire more of him. David said earnestly, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body just longs for you. When, when's the last time you can honestly say those kind of things about your relationship with God? Man, 
my soul is just thirsting for you. I am just, my body longs for you, God. I'm, I am just having this unquenchable thirst for God. And I am just earnestly seeking him out. That, that's, what, that's what David is saying, because I am just in the midst of all the pressures, the things that are going around. I am earnestly seeking you. My soul is thirsty for you. My body is longing for you. I am hungering for you, God. I'm hungering for you. This word translated seeks earnestly comes from the word. There's a whole strange etymology that comes from here. But basically, the point is that to seek after God means that we have to go, off, go after Him with just an intense desire. Can you imagine what, if our church, you, starting off with individuals, if we would have just this intense desire to seek after God individually? If men would just have, get over our man issues and feel vulnerable before God and seek Him, seek Him with everything that we have and just chase after God with our whole heart, our whole lives, to say, I want more of God. In fact, I want more of God than I want of my wife, my kids, my job, all this stuff that the world might owe, owe me. I want God more than that. Could you imagine, women, if you had the same hunger and thirst where you're just constantly knocking at an elder's door and saying, I need another women's Bible study. I, I need it because... I, Man, I, my personal devotional life is just absolutely rich, but I, I need more. I, 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 I got to seek for more and more because I just am enjoying God. It's almost insatiable. It just doesn't fill me. I need to have more of God. And that is the same thing. And I, in doing part of my sermon prep, you know, I, I, I do these searches for illustrations and pictures and there's a story about Socrates a, a young man wanting to be his disciple and this young man yes Socrates was not a Christian so if we can move beyond that we'll be just fine just get to the illustration point okay a young man just came running after Socrates saying Socrates Socrates can I be your disciple can I be your disciple and Socrates ignored him and kept on walking, walking. And finally, what does Socrates do? He walks out into the water. And the young man followed him and repeated the question, Socrates, can I be your disciple? Socrates turns around without a word, grabs the young man and dunks him under the water and held him down until he knew he could not take it anymore. Can you imagine? grabbing somebody by the scruff and just holding down underwater, arms flailing until you know there's only a couple more bubbles of air. And then he pulls him up, and Socrates says to him, when you desire truth as much as you seek air, you can be my disciple. How much do you desire God? How much do you... Do you desire him as much as the air that you breathe, the food that you eat, the job that you have, the relationships that you have? We need to have that kind of desire. A.W. Tozer, throw up that quote for me, in his, his devotional classic called The Pursuit of God, said this, Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Come near to a holy men and women of the past, and you will soon feel the heat of their desire after God. They mourned for Him. They prayed and wrestled and sought for Him day and night, in season and out. And, they had, and when they found Him, the finding was all the sweeter for the long seeking. Complacency is one of our worst enemies. I'm fine. I'm fine with my spiritual walk. You know, I, it's good that I'm 
I'm here. Uh, somebody asked me, do you get a special gold star, you know, a bonus for showing up on New Year's Day? Yeah, you do, but why are you here? Is it out of your, your religious, I got to do this? Or is it even for you showing up out of, is it showing up because you so desire more? You are just hungry for him, seeking him. And Sunday morning is just another opportunity as the body gathers for you to be filled with more of the knowledge of Christ. And the, here's the thing, to seek after God means that there is always going to be more. There's always going to more be, be more because God is an infinite person. Just if you, if you think that you've got the corner of God figured out, and you can get, man, this is who God is, He's going to blow your bubble right out of the water as soon as you step and start earnestly seeking Him. Because all of a sudden you're going to go, oh my word, I've never seen that, I've never experienced that, I've never understood that. God is so much bigger. So the third thing, to seek after God means to pursue God alone as that which satisfies your soul. When David was in a jam, when he was just under all this pressure, the tendency is to kind of use God as the Aladdin genie bottle. I'm in a squeeze here, God, and what I need you to do is grant this wish. This is what I need you to do. And when it's over, you put him back on the shelf, wait for the next issue to, to come up, and then you're going to have this amazing prayer life again because it's going to all hit the fan again, and you've got to rub your, your God genie bottle again and ask for another wish. The problem is God is in the background, and he's not central. Put yourself in David's place. He had, he had fled his throne. He left all his possession, all his wives behind him. His own son, whom he deeply loved, was attempting to kill him. And yet, in all of this, David wasn't trying to use God to answer his needs. Nowhere in here do you see David say, okay, God, I'd really like to have my throne back. You gave it to me in the first place. Uh, if you could take care of this son issue. Instead, what... what what words does he say? I seek you. I thirst for you. I yearn for you. Your love is better than life. These are amazing statements. And it's a constant battle. A constant battle. Because we're all prone to drift. We're all prone to go in different places. We go to church on Sunday. We profess to be Christians. But we're really living for something other than God. To seek Him means to pursue Him alone to meet the needs of your soul. Does God meet your deepest needs and your most superficial needs? Does He fill you? So how do we seek after God? How do we seek after Him? First, you seek after God by putting love for God at the center of your relationship for Him. God's loyal, steadfast love was better to David than life itself. God's love is better than life itself. I love, I love that statement. It blows me away. And I'm pretty sure most of us in this room cannot say that it's true for us. Your steadfast love is better than life itself. Nope, my, my kids win most of the time. My wife wins most of the time. Man, I can't imagine being without them. God, you know, he kind of fills this slice, this need that I have. But your steadfast love, oh God is better than life itself. 
That's a huge confession. Your relationship with God is just even comparable, comparable to like a marriage relationship. Marriage is, is this relationship where there's just intense feelings of passion and a lifelong commitment where they're just intertwined together. And when a couple falls in love, there's strong feelings. I remember back when Laura, way back in the day, when Laura and I were dating, there was just this, oh, gooey kind of love, you know? It's like, oh, every, every time we went somewhere, it was a date. Even if it was a grocery store, I could not wait to do Jewel with my wife. Oh, or, you know, I was sure that our first date was Ranch Frosties. Because I was just so enamored with her. I was going to Ranch Frosties with my wife. I was convinced this was it. I loved her. Oh, I had these. And she goes, are you serious? For an ice cream cone? That was not a day. But for me, it was just this ah, intense feelings of emotion. But marriage itself cannot be built on feelings alone. But on commitment. The commitment carries you through the hard times when the feelings sometimes fades. Sometimes you have to work at romance. Amen? You have to work at romance. But if there are never any feelings of love, your marriage is in trouble. And the same is true. Seeking after God means that you keep your passion for God alive. Christianity is not just a matter of, of your head, but, it's, but of the heart. As you think on what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, it ought to move you emotionally. God, your love, your love, your steadfast love is better than your commitment, your committing love to me is better than life. I know what you've done through Jesus Christ for me. Through Jesus Christ, you did these things for me. I was, I was unworthy of it. But your love transcended all these things, broke down all these walls, made a way to God the Father through Jesus Christ, through the cross. You made a way. Your steadfast love for me is better than life because it has provided me. So in the same ways, your job, your outside interests, your time with friends, even your involvement in church, these are great things, good things. But they shouldn't come before your marriage. And in the same way, nothing, not even your marriage and your family, not even your kids, should come before your love relationship with God. God has got to be the central person that informs everything. Which leads to the second thing. How do we seek God? You seek God by spending consistent time alone with Him. Consistent, consistent, consistent. And consistent is not just Sunday morning. consistent time. David was under intense pressure. And he had to think about all his loyal followers who fled with him, how they were going to be fed, how they were going to get water in this barren wilderness. He had to constantly be thinking strategically about their safety. And yet, he did not neglect earnestly seeking God in this trying situation. David made it a priority to write a song in the wilderness. This is a song. How many of us write songs in, their, in our pressure? And what does David do? He probably pulls out his harp and does it ever so quietly out in the field because he doesn't want anybody to hear him. What does he do? He pens a song. 
while he is under pressure, he spent time alone with God, finding the words that just describe my love for you, my feelings for you. We all, we all make time to do what we really want. Isn't that true? We all do. Same goes true with this morning. You made it a priority. A few of you made it a priority. We all make time for what is important. How is your time in the Word? How is your time in prayer? Is it growing? Is it consistent? If you love God, and you can say your love is better than life, or at least I'm growing to understand that, if if you love God, you will spend time with Him. You will. You will spend time with Him. This includes time in, in the Word. This includes time of renewing your mind so that you can please Him. Time in prayer. Time with bringing your needs and others, be, others' needs before Him. It includes times in prayer and praise and expressing your love. It, it includes even serving one another. Third, how do, we, how do we seek God? We seek God by integrating Him into every area of our life. There's not one area of our life that is to be God-free. Well, that's my secular part. Every part. God isn't just the spoke on a wheel. He's the absolute hub. God permeates every area of your life. He's the Lord of every decision that you make. The Lord of every relationship that you have. There is no area of your life, your business, your family, your money, your education, whatever, where God is not to be an integral part of your life. He's to inform and transform every area of your life. Not just your Sunday mornings. He's to inform how you do marriage together. And then he transforms that to make it more and more and more beautiful. Where it looks like, ah, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church, giving himself up completely, giving his whole life. It informs, God informs and transforms your marriage. He, it informs and transforms how you deal with the finances that you have. You look at these and go, these are gifts from God, and His steadfast love is better than life, and He has given me these things, this money, these resources. How do I now use them? Do I hoard them, put them in my checkbook and keep them right there, or do I use them for the sake of furthering the kingdom? Do I pay down debt? Do I build up more debt? How do I, how do I raise my kids? God has got to be an integral part of informing how you raise your children and transforming you daily in how you raise your kids. There's no division, no division between secular and sacred. All of life is related to God because it's His. And here's David. His kingdom is in absolute disarray. He's running for his life, seeking to pr protect his men. And it would be understandable, totally understandable, right? If, if God was temporarily kind of squeezed out of the picture and so, so that David could just kind of move on to more practical ways of dealing with the problem, God, I get it. But listen, here's the reality. I've got this problem. And I've got to handle it. I get this worship stuff. I get the songs. I'll even write you a love song. But here's the reality. My son's out to kill me. I've got a problem. So I've got to move on to a more practical solution. I've got to move on to a more tangible solution instead of this ethereal love relationship. But David is following hard 
after God as the King James Version puts verse 8. Verse 8 says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. King James says, you are, he is following hard after God. Following hard after him. God is at the absolute center of his life. So as we look at 2012, if you could give an absolute, honest assessment, absolutely honest, as if this room was totally empty, and you could be honest before God, and say, God, this, this is the reality. How is it with you and God? Really. How is it with you and God? You might say, Paul, God, I'm, I'm actively serving Him. That's nice. It's, but that's not what I'm act, asking. I'm not asking if you're serving in the children's ministry, leading a, a, a house group, a missional community, helping out with worship up here, greeting people as they're coming back, tearing down and setting up chairs. That's not what I'm asking about. You can be in full-time, trust me, you can be in full-time ministry and you can lose sight of seeking God Himself. And that is personal experience speaking. How are you with God? Alan Redpath is a godly pastor. He used to be pastor at Moody Bible Church. And he, he told how he faced a time in his life when the opportunities for ministry were the greatest that he has ever seen. He, the Excel spreadsheet for church ministry just could not keep up for him, with him. Everything was just off the charts. God seemed to be blessing his preaching. It was kind of the thing that every pastor prays for. That you speak and people show up by the droves, get saved by the droves. And then right in the middle of all of that, Redpath was laid up with a stroke. And he tells as he was laying in the hospital bed, he, he asked, Lord, why? Why now, when all the opportunities to serve you are so great, why now? And what he said haunts me. He said that the Lord quietly impressed upon him, Alan, your work, you've gotten your work ahead of your worship. You've gotten your work ahead of your worship. Review your past week, your past month, your past year, and ask yourself, did my schedule, did my finances, did my relationships reflect that God is my number one priority? That His steadfast love is better than life. Because pressure reveals our true priorities. And when pressure is on, everything but the essentials gets put on hold. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is telling us through David, seeking God is essential. Seeking God is essential. And if it's not essential for you, if seeking God is not essential to you, then you've got to join David, the man after God's own heart, in making it so. It's five after. We can do communion, we can... Uh, sing our last two songs. As we start 2012, as you hear, oh God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you, my soul 
thirst for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I look to you and I behold you in power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. I'll bless you. My soul will be nourished with rich and fatty foods. What is God? And this, this is uh, audience participation time. What is God impressing on you for 2012? What is God just you heard this. You've heard Scripture. And Scripture is not just to kind of inform you, it's to transform you. What is it that God is pressing in on you for 2012 in light of the Scripture this morning? Loud and proud. What is it? Others. Hmm. More disciplined in time in the Word. Good. Thanks, Pat. Others. Hmm. Good. How can I hold you to that? Monkey see, monkey do. Not calling your kids monkeys, but yeah, modeling our kids to our kids are earnestly seeking after. Jenny. Not as a resounding gong. Yeah. Good. Others. Constantly checking. Who updated? That's an indictment right there. Hmm. 
place him where trust. Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you. They're good plans. richer your relationship with Christ, how that will just flow out into your... Very true. I think about uh, past week, Todd and I uh, walked through Ephesians 5 about uh, how there's this responsibility of, of husbands, much like uh, Christ. Um, husbands are to, uh, to sanctify. Uh, let me just read it. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands. Um, I've got to turn up the heat of my uh, duties. Sounds like such a mechanical word, but my my, my God-given responsibilities to disciple my wife, to lead her in the word, train her, my kids too, you know, just present her before Christ. And when I, when I have that last day before God, I stand before him and I said, look, look at my wife. I have done the absolute best absolute best in presenting her as a pure spotless bride before you. Look at my kids. Look at Isaac. Look at Gracie. Lord, I have done, I've used my financial resources. I've used my emotional. I've used my, my uh, you name it, resources in pouring into them, pouring the gospel into them. And Lord, I I stand before you proud. And hearing those words, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You dropped the ball a couple times, but well done. And so for me, um, this Ephesians 5 thing is, uh, 
coming after me. Same with First Peter, where he talks about uh, shepherding the flock that you've been given. I've got a flock at home. I've got a family that I'm to shepherd. So, anyone else? Anything resonating that you want to put out there? We're going to uh, be enjoying the Lord's Supper. And in this time, um, after you hear a sermon like this, many of us go, oh my gosh, I am so not earnestly seeking. I'm kind of doing this mediocre-ish job at best. And so we, we come to this meal as, as people who just don't have it together. But we come knowing that something was accomplished and that all things are possible through Christ. Not by our own strength, but all things are possible through Christ who gives us strength. And it's for our pleasure and his pleasure that he makes this possible. So this table is open to those who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, have trusted in him, professed that. So that means that it's open to messed up people like you and me who are again clinging onto his grace. Remembering the power is not in us, but the power is found in Him. The same power that worked in Christ and raised Him from the grave, that same power is in us. So we come to this meal grateful, thankful for His work. But we also come expectantly, knowing that He has worked in us, is working in us and will continue working in us until that last day where all things are complete.